Well, this morning we move into uh, Revelation chapter 2. I almost said Ephesians chapter 2, but it's a letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, We move into Revelation chapter 2, and Lord willing, we're going to look at uh, one letter to one church in verses 1 through 7. Now, this is written to a historical church, the church in Ephesus, um, but it's also all of Revelation is sent to all of the churches. So this is a particular message for one particular church, which is supposed to be read by other churches in uh, that was that were contemporary to this one and also for us today. So this is a letter to a church in the same way that the actual epistle that we call Ephesians, Paul's letter to Ephesus, uh, in the same way that that is for us, this is for us as well. So let's read that letter. Uh, and this actually is dictated uh, by Jesus. This is a letter from Jesus to the church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, you you, you may recall uh, in last week we talked about what it means that uh, the Lord, this one like the Son of Man, walks through the middle of the lampstands, and that the angels that he holds in his right hand are uh, the angels to the churches, or the stars that he holds in his right hand are the angels of the churches. And now we find that the letter is actually addressed to the angel. And so for the next seven, uh, for the seven letters to the seven churches, each one is addressed to the angel of that particular church. And because the word angel, angelos, simply means messenger, there are debates whether or not these are angelic beings, the way we think about Gabriel, or whether these are human messengers. Uh, angelos can be used for either. And usually it's the context that makes it clear. This time, this is one of the few places where the context isn't quite as clear as uh, other times. However, when angels are referred to outside of this context in Revelation, it's always referring to angelic beings. Uh, there's an odd, hard to interpret, hard to understand passage in 1 Corinthians that talks about, you know, decorum in services and head coverings and all of the rest because of the angels. And so there does seem to be some kind of spirit being correspondence with the gathering that we have together as human beings as well. Regardless, the main point, of course, was that the Son of Man, the one like the Son of Man, holds these beings 
in his hand of sovereign power. So God is in complete control, whether angelic beings, human beings, messengers to the churches, pastors, elders, whatever it is, uh, God is in control. These belong to Jesus. The message to the church reminds them of the inaugural vision in chapter 1. In fact, every letter to the seven churches will draw on some element of that inaugural vision in chapter 1, which is relevant for their particular circumstance. So, for Ephesus, it's, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's a reminder, again, the light does not start with the church. The light is not generated by the church. The church is the stand on which the lamp of God's light is set. And so the the church isn't the light source. Jesus is the light source. God's revelation is the light source. But the church is where God displays his light. It's the stand on which the light is placed to shine and to illuminate. So, you're reminded, the one speaking to you is the one who is in sovereign control of the churches, and he's also present. He's there. He's the one with the angels in his hand who is amongst his churches. And because he's amongst his churches, he can say in verse 2, I know your deeds. Think about that. The Lord of the church knows your deeds. Now, I think what's important to remember is that there's always going to be sort of this oscillation of lenses here. Jesus is speaking to the church as a whole, but the church as a whole doesn't exist as an abstraction. That is, the church as a whole is the collection of individuals who make it up. And so what is addressed to the church as a whole is addressed to individuals. However, not absolutely every single thing that's said of every individual, or sorry, not every single thing that's said of the church in general will be true of every single individual in that church. Okay, so we'll, and we'll see an example of that in a little bit. However, when Jesus says, I know your deeds, he's speaking to the church as a whole, but also to individuals in that congregation. He knows what we do. This isn't so much about personal application, though, to you as an individual. It's about the corporate nature of the church. Speaking to the church in Ephesus, I know your deeds. I know what you're like. Uh, And so we can say the same thing about Crestwick or any other local congregation. Churches have their own kind of spirit. Churches have their own strengths and weaknesses. And and so churches are involved in kingdom work corporately. And there are individuals who do their own, have their own ministries, I understand that. Uh, But the Crestwick as a church has chosen to be involved in various ministries and done certain things. Uh, We have succeeded and failed together as a corporate whole. And so God is saying, or Christ is saying to this church, I know your deeds, I know what you're like, I know what you've done. That's well worth pondering. The Lord knows our deeds. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. This is very positive. You have worked hard. 
you have not cut corners. You have you have you know put in the long hours. You have not sort of followed me as a church because it's some kind of pleasure cruise. You have actually worked hard, uh, and you have persevered in that hard work. You're, you've been actively engaged in ministry. You're not passive. Right? You you deal with hardship and you keep going. You persevere. You know, you almost in some ways, you know, to update to the 21st century. You want to say, you know, you when you volunteer for something, you show up. You know, you, you don't look at ministry as this sort of optional thing on the side that you may or may not do, you know, depending on how you feel that Sunday. You work hard. You you're committed. You show up and you do what you say you're going to do. And sometimes it's difficult, but you persevere. You keep going. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Now note that they're actually, they're praised for not tolerating wicked people. Uh, they, They identify those who claim to be apostles but who aren't. Now, Paul, of course, will deal with people who think that they're super apostles in Corinth. Uh, Paul will will talk about people who go out saying that they're apostles. Peter will talk about the same thing in his epistles. In the first century, to be an apostle meant in the highest sense to have been sort of a disciple of Jesus who walked with Jesus. Paul's the great exception to that, but Jesus still appeared to him after the resurrection uh, on on that special uh, road encounter that he had. And Paul recognized how unique and special that was, how unrepeatable that was. But in the first century, I mean, you you don't have social media, uh, you don't have news footage, and so it's a lot easier to go out. You can't just pick up the phone and, and call or text someone, you know, uh, hundreds of miles away asking about someone's identity. And so it was very easy for people uh, to come into churches as false teachers. I mean, there's, there's a ton of false teaching today, obviously, uh, but there are people who were able to come forward saying, no, I, I am authorized with authority to speak in this church. You know, I'm sent with authority from wherever. You know, I, I'm authorized by, by the Lord uh, himself to bring this message or whatever it was. So there were people who claimed to be sent with authority. Some of them were false. And so the people in Ephesus are praised. You have, you don't tolerate this wickedness. You, people claim to be apostles, but you, you test them. And what are they testing them by? Well, they're testing them according to the revelation of God, the, the truth of God and the witness of the Holy Spirit. Are they teaching things that are true about Jesus? What about their life? Are they teaching uh, that you can be engaged in all kinds of unethical activities? Are they justifying sin? Are, are they trying to enrich themselves? Are they trying to live for their own pleasure? Are they harsh with other people? That you, you test them. You found them to be false. Recognizing and identifying false teachers is praiseworthy in the sight of God. Uh, would that we had that kind of discernment when it comes to uh, best-selling Christian books and uh, some people, not all, but some people who have massive you know, TV and, and internet ministries, you know, would that the people of God were discerning today 
you know, about false apostles and not tolerating that kind of nonsense. Well, the church in Ephesus is praised for this. You have persevered and endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. This is really draining. And this is actually, I I can appreciate this uh, commendation here. You have persevered and endured hardship for my name. That is, they really are suffering for Jesus' sake. That is, they're not suffering some sort of, you know, weak martyr complex. They're not making it up. They're not hand-wringing, pretending they're victims. They really have been in tough. And they've really worked hard. And they've persevered and they've endured. It is very, very taxing and draining to deal with wicked people. It is extraordinarily hard, you know, to persevere you know, in the face of false teaching, trying to counter it again and again and again and again. Uh, to, you can imagine if they had the equivalent of a business meeting, and you've got these false apostles with their with their false agendas and false teachings, and you don't want to fight, you don't want to be pugnacious for no reason. But sometimes you need to, as Jews, you need to contend for the faith, and contending for the faith is draining. It is hard intellectually and emotionally and spiritually and even physically. The Lord says, you've persevered and endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. And this is why I think it's such a great commendation. I don't know how you do that and not grow weary. Somehow they, they had some incredible gift of God's grace where they were able to persevere through all kinds of, of spiritual warfare and opposition and they didn't lose heart. They were able to have courage. They were able to not give up. They, they didn't faint or fall on the road. They, they persevered and did not grow weary. And I don't know how you do that exactly. You know, life can be so tiring. You know, you know, contending for the faith and and truth and and your own personal struggles and all it is and, and church struggles and issues, it can just grind you down. But here, the Lord says, "You've, my goodness, you, you have done a good job here. You've persevered under real hardship. Not only have you persevered." But you haven't given up. You haven't grown weary. He knows their deeds. This is not speculation. They have not tricked him. This is not hypocrisy. He's the sovereign Lord who's in the church. I know your deeds. You haven't tolerated wickedness. You've worked hard to find out if someone is a true or a false apostle. You've endured uh, hardship for my name. You haven't grown weary. Listen, if those things could be said of our church, that would be a feather in the cap. I mean, that is really, truly high praise. But what you discover next in verse 4 is that the church, like individuals in the church, are a mixed bag. There are things to praise. There are things to correct. There are things to rebuke. 
There are good things. There are bad things. There are areas where growth has taken place and where there's fruit. There are other areas where there needs to be pruning and trimming. There needs to be weeding. Uh, you know, there, there needs to be care that, that as this church is growing, there's a recognition that, well, this seems to be going well, but this is really dangerous. In fact, this, what Jesus is about to say, is really, really dangerous. Now, now just one quick aside, one little digression, if I may, uh, about the structure. In the seven churches, uh, the, the route that is followed is a postal route. But interestingly enough, churches one and seven are the ones that are in real danger. Ephesus and Laodicea. So your brackets are with churches that are in real trouble. Number two and six are excellent churches. And then three, four, and five in the middle are, are in the middle. They're literally, structurally, geographically in the middle. And they're middle of the road. Some good things, some bad things. Nothing as alarming as Ephesus and Laodicea. Nothing quite as exemplary as you know, numbers two and six. Three, four, and five are just in the middle. And so the first thing you're told here is, listen, there's a, there's a lot of great things. Ephesus, there's some good things you're doing. But here's something really, really frightening. Yet, I hold this against you. Despite his grace and mercy and love and compassion, despite his, his praising his people for the good that they do, Jesus Christ can still hold things against a church. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Some translations bring us across as you have forsaken your first love. That's uh, a misleading way for us of understanding. It's not talking about um, sort of priority. It's talking about a temporal sequence. So the NIV here is exactly right. You have forsaken the love you had at first. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying. I hold this against you. You used to have a love in the church that you no longer have. You, you've forsaken the love you had at the beginning. Now, wh what does this mean? Well, it means that in some level, they're violating those two greatest commandments. To love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves. That is, there, there is, a, there is a, a cooling of love either for God or for brothers and sisters in the congregation, in the church. And, and you may know what this is like. And this is where it may be true of the church, but it may also be true of individuals. Because uh, certainly not every single person in the church had forsaken the love they had at first. Some were certainly growing in love. It must have been. But as a corporate group, the church did not have the fire of, of, uh, and passion of love that they had for God and for one another that they used to. And maybe some of you know what this is like. To, to know what it's like when you're first converted. 
and, and to love praising God and, and to soak in his word and to not need to be disciplined in prayer because you, you just find yourself praying and to want to tell people about Jesus and, and to love showing up to serve and to minister and to be in the church. And, and you love God. You love Jesus and you love the gospel. And, and you find yourself loving other people. And over time, maybe it ebbs and flows. Maybe it burns bright, then, then dwindles down to embers. Years, decades later, that passion that you had can start to fade. There's lots of reasons why that may be the case. But nonetheless, look at your life right now. Do you love God? Do you love Jesus the way you used to? Now, corporately, there are a lot of churches where at the beginning, when they start, they are started with passion and fervor for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And over time, they become a moribund, institutionalized country club. You know, there's, there's a story told, you know, a common illustration, about a, a little seaside village where there were a fishing village. And there was a dangerous shoal that used to have, there used to be shipwrecks on stormy nights. And so the, this little town eventually decided they would, they would create a rescue center, a mission center. And, and when there were stormy nights, they'd mobilize. And if there's a shipwreck, you know, they, they'd be prepared to go and rescue people and bring them in. And, and so they built this little shelter and, they, they had their boats, and on stormy nights, they'd be ready to go, and at the signal, they'd go, and they'd, try, they, they'd combat the storm because they had certain expertise, and they, they would try to rescue survivors. And over time, because they spent a lot of time doing this, they decided, well, maybe, maybe our little mission shelter, you know, well, why don't we why don't make it a little bit nicer to be in? You know, so you expand it a little bit, and, and you bring in a little bit of furniture, and, you know, over time, maybe you add some carpet and, and it becomes kind of a nice place. And so people start hanging out there even when you, there's nothing going on. Like people start hanging out there even when there's no storm, there's no rescue. It, it becomes a bit of a, of a club. And as time goes on, as people spend more time sort of in the club versus rescuing, you sort of notice that, that when you do rescue people, I mean, they, you, you drag them in out of the ocean and you kind of just muddy up the carpet. And, and you know, people who are half drowned, you know, can, can puke up stuff and, you know, it's smelly and dirty and, and, you know, the club's a little bit more pleasant without those people, without involving yourself in that rescue mission. Slowly and, and, and surely, you can drift from the original vision. Uh, that, that, that's almost like the gravity of human nature pulls you in that way. You need to be reminding yourself of what you're supposed to be doing. And of course, you know, the, depending on the version of the story, you know, the, the stories, even the, little, the people at this little village you know, eventually decided you know, to, to 
to disband the rescue mission in favor of keeping their club. Well, is that a reasonable illustration of what happens to churches sometimes? Oh, we, we, we protect our, we privilege our building over people. We, we want our, we, we, we call, I want to be very careful here, but we call our pastors staff. We, we expect to be served by our staff. It's very dangerous. Partly semantics, I, I recognize. Where's, where's the passion and love that you had at first? Churches should grow more, not less loving as time goes on. What's the corporate spirit? Consider how far you have fallen. What a shocking thing to hear from Jesus. Think about how far you have fallen from where you used to be in love. Repent and do the things you did at first. It is look at where you are now as a church, repent of the things you need to repent of, and go back to do those things you used to do. I mean, in some ways, to borrow on that little illustration, you'd get up and you'd say in your little club, okay, guys, listen, we used to not have a bar and sit around playing pool. Like, we used to rescue people, so we, we can't, we used to have a cot, you know, where the pool table is. Get the pool table out of here. You know, we, we used to have medicine where, where the bar is. Get the bar out of here. Like, like let's, let's get back to what we used to do. Churches need to do that too. Sometimes churches need to repent of, uh, of trusting corporate secular wisdom rather than the word of God. Sometimes churches need to repent of, of fostering approaches to accomplishing agenda items apart from the priorities of God's word and walking by the spirit in unity. There's a million things that churches may need to repent of. Go back to do what you used to. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Did you hear that? If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. The lampstand is what the light sits on. And Jesus says to this church, you know what? I don't need you. I don't need you for my light to shine. Crestwick Baptist, I do not need you in the city of Guelph for my light to shine. I will just remove you. I've got the seven lampstands, and you know what? I I am the light of the world. I am happy for my light to shine from you, but I can also remove you. Listen, there are, there are a ton of churches that, that have a life cycle where, where they're, they're birthed and they grow and they mature and they get weak and frail and die. Jesus Christ, for the sake of the gospel mission, has no problem whatsoever with removing lampstands. He doesn't need them. If you do not repent, he's basically saying, if you do not repent, I'm shutting you down. And probably... For years after he shut them down, they were still open. There are a ton of churches that have 
church buildings and open doors that haven't been a real church for decades. The gospel hasn't been preached in decades. They haven't truly loved God in decades, but they still call themselves whatever church. No, Jesus can remove, terrifyingly, Jesus can remove your lampstand and you can still be open for business and do a thriving business. But you have this in your favor. Isn't that that absolutely incredible? You almost forget with how strong this rebuke is and how he's saying, you might cease being a church. You'd almost forget how he started by praising them for what they do right. And now he reminds them of something else that they have in their favor. In other words, you know, this is really, really, really serious. But Jesus did not come to them and say, I'm done. I'm removing your lampstand today. He hasn't quit on them yet. But he's warning them. This is serious. But you can repent. Come back to me. Turn back to me. It's okay. There's things you're doing well. You have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And we don't know much about this group. Um, you know, they could have been idolatrous, syncretistic in terms of mixing religions, fusing certain elements into Christianity, sexually immoral, anti-law. I mean, we don't really know, but that's what most of those cults were sort of like in the first century that tried to attach themselves to the church and to Christianity. God says, listen, you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of these people. I hate them. I hate those practices too. Now, that, in the first instance, it tells you that God does hate certain behaviors and thoughts and ideas and teachings. And we are to hate what God hates. God says, listen, it's in your favor that you hate what I hate. I'd say for Crestwick, not being the Lord of the church, my opinion, I think that that Jesus could say, listen, you guys did your best in terms of being involved in, in IJM and the fellowship and trying to help stop sexual abuse in the Philippines. You you hate that there is that kind of sexual exploitation. I hate it too. You have this in your favor. You you hate the sexual exploitation of children. I hate that too. Hopefully we hate what God hates. Hopefully we do hate racial discrimination and sexism sexual abuse and exploitation, the trampling down of the poor, the marginalization of the vulnerable, arrogance and pride, false teaching, greed, environmental degradation, total lack of concern with indigenous communities and history. May God help us to hate what he hates. It was to their favor that they did. But may God rescue us from this. May God rescue us from hating what he hates, but not loving what he loves. You have fallen from a great height. Jesus says, you used to love me. You used to love me more than you do now. Jesus says that. Repent, turn back to me. I think, 
I have a taste of this myself. And I think I can see it in some very prominent preachers and teachers in the church, in the wider church community. There are a lot of preachers and teachers who over time get very jaded and cynical and angry and bitter. And they're fighting culture wars that don't even exist. They're making up things to fight. Everything's defensive. Everything is offensive. Everything's a war. And they're just standing for the truth. And some, some guys just get chips on their shoulders about everything. Arrogance and dogmatism and everything's a fight. And, and, and they're just being righteous. They, they just hate what God hates. You want to say, yeah, yeah, you hate what God hates, but do you love what God loves? Let's not get destroyed. Let's not let our souls get destroyed by culture wars. Yes, we, we hopefully valiantly and purely contend for the truth. But it's not enough to hate what God hates. We must love what God loves. If you, you can hate what God hates, but if you don't love what God loves, you're not even going to be a church. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is speaking to the churches and to us. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Paradise refers to a garden, a sanctuary. It's sort of the the epitome in, in imagery of you know, a peaceful place. It's in the Bible, God's paradise is Eden restored, or, or better, Eden glorified, the Eden of the new heavens and new earth, where there will never be a serpent, uh, where there will never be temptation and sin. If you just listen to the Spirit of Jesus, not because you're perfect, not because you're flawless, but because of his grace, you can be victorious. And being victorious doesn't mean that you never stumble or fall or fail. You will be given the right to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. That, that gift, that grant denied to Adam and Eve after their sin and in mercy denied. Nothing could have been worse than for them to eat of the tree of life confirmed in sin forever. In that sense, death is a punishment and a mercy. No, but but resurrected to eat of the tree of life, to be confirmed eternally into the image of Christ. That's what belongs to us if we are victorious through the grace and love of Jesus. It's in the paradise of God. It's in the garden of God. So what about us as individuals and as a church? Where are we? Are we in danger of God removing our lampstand? Do we hate what God hates? Do we persevere? Do we work hard? Do we need to repent? Do we love? Do we love God and love each other? Are we going to be victorious? This is one of the things that's so beautiful about this letter. Jesus has just said, listen, unless you repent, you won't even be a church anymore. And then he says, yeah, but you can be victorious. The threat is real, but you can be victorious and eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God.
Well, may he help us. May he help us to persevere and endure hardship for his name without growing weary. To, to test and see what is true and right and to follow him and, and, and to love him. To hate what he hates, but even more importantly, to love what he loves. To love him. He who has an ear. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God give us the grace to hear for us individually and corporately what the Spirit says to our church through this letter, through this part of his revelation. And may God help us to persevere, to repent, and to love so we can be victorious. You will never be victorious apart from the strength and grace of God. So, go in grace and peace.